This podcast is sponsored by GCK Consulting, a next generation political consulting firm. From fundraising to polling to campaign strategy, GCK is helping get millennials elected all across the country. To learn more about GCK and their services, just go to gckconsults.com. Again, that's gckconsults.com. All right, now to the podcast. Welcome to the Millennial Politics Podcast. I'm your host, Jordan Valerie. My pronouns are she, her, hers. And today I'm joined by Lori Birch, Democratic nominee for Congress in Texas's third. Thanks for coming on and congrats on winning the primary. Yes, thank you so much. I'm I'm excited to have won and I'm excited to be on. Yeah, we're excited too. So a Democrat hasn't represented the seat in Congress since 1968. What's different this year? <laughs> so much. Where do we start? I think the overall climate in Texas and certainly this area is just obviously changing a great deal. And that is we see more and more our elected leaders, both at the local level and state level, in addition to the federal level, are just more and more out of touch with the people they represent and more beholden to these special interests and big money and their donors, as well as playing these this partisanship. And at the same time, this area, which is my home, I've gone to high school here, grown, grown up here in, in most sense of, of the expression, and we've seen this influx of diversity come into our area. And that's helped improve our schools. It's helped improve our, our economy, whether it's bringing in large corporations as well as small businesses like myself, which really is the backbone of a lot of the economy here in the North Texas Collin County area. And with that diversity has brought people from not only all over the country, but all over the world. And one in five people, in fact, uh, residents of Collin County are foreign born, in addition to the median age being 36. And we're also one of the largest and fastest growing areas in the country for LGBT families. And so I think that there is a, a hunger overall in the country, but certainly in our community that our values really do reflect reflect those who are being represented. And this seems like the, the time is right when I'm out there talking to, to people, no matter how frankly conservative or how progressive they are, they want to see leadership that is listening to the people, finding common ground, building consensus that truly is representative of our, our current climate and the people who are bringing such prosperity and success to our area. So you mentioned LGBTQ families. I believe your candidacy means a lot to a lot of these families um, <laughs> because if elected, you would become the first openly LGBTQ member of Texas's congressional delegation. There are two other Democratic congressional candidates on the general election ballot this year. Of course, it would be wonderful to see all three of you go to Congress. What does this mean to you? I think what is important about that, in addition to the fact that I also would be the very first woman to ever, ever represent the third congressional district of Texas. And I think that gets to the overall importance of it's not enough, really, and, and maybe it never has, but certainly now for people to try and speak on behalf of the community to actually see you have a seat at the table and have more diverse representation at the table, I think is so critical to really being able to to come together, feel like people have a government that's reflective of themselves, but also really having the different voices and perspectives so that we can find that common ground in order to provide 
the most opportunities for, for everybody in the community. I mean, it's hard to have just one type of person uh, leading and, and trying to represent everybody. So I do think it's important in that regard to actually see our own community reflected in the leadership itself. So could you tell us about the state of LGBTQ rights, both in Texas and on a federal level? Well, I think the, the great thing about that question is that that's really the issue. That's really where we are in that we more and more have, particularly here in Texas, are elected leaders who aren't listening to the very communities that they represent. And so while we have this, this diversity in Texas and certainly in Collin County, and from a, from a social standpoint, from a business standpoint, from uh, an economic standpoint, from an education standpoint, there's all that diversity. I mean, some people wonder, how can I live in, in, in Texas? And it's like, you just don't know the people. I mean, it's, it's such a welcoming and accepting environment. But our leaders who are making the laws are not reflective or in touch with that. They're beholden to these special interests and, and to a, a donor class in partisan politics. And so I think that's really the key thing that we need to see. I mean, Texas is definitely behind, behind big time when it comes to LGBTQ equality. At the federal level, you know, it felt like for a while there, we were really uh, having some major strides, particularly with marriage equality, but we still have the Equality Act that is on the table. INDA has been, uh, for Employment Non-Discrimination Act, has been languishing. And then in my own legal practice that I have, where we do um, estate planning and probate and family planning, planning. And then my, my wife, actually, who founded Rainbow Roundup, which is uh, one of the country's uh, largest, actually, LGBT family organizations, you see that there's a huge uh, divide when it comes to how now families are being created and how these parent-child relationships are being interpreted. And at the state level, but certainly at the federal level, these are all things that, that need to be tackled and addressed. I will, I will tell you, unless we see some major changes, and I hope we do when it comes to who's elected at the state and local level, I think Texas is, is going to be dragged into, <laughs> dragged into uh, LGBTQ equality and advancement, much like it was with the marriage equality decision. But there's always hope. There's always hope. Mm -hmm. So I think one of the biggest concerns for LGBTQ activists right now is Trump's judicial nominees. Now, of course, as a member of the House, you would not have a vote on who is and is not confirmed. But of course, you do have power to pass to introduce legislation to protect LGBTQ rights. What can the House of Representatives do to fight back against anti-LGBTQ justices and judges who might be on the judicial branch for decades to come? Well, there's a lot packed in that question that really gets to the heart of, of my campaign. One of the first things I'll say that I've always been very interested in. In fact, when I went to law school at George Washington in DC, I had uh, two fel concurrent fellowships, one with People for the American Way and the other one with the Human Rights Campaign. And what I worked on was actual judicial nominations. And I think sometimes people don't realize just how critical that is when it comes to the election at the presidential level, that they not only shape the Supreme Court, but also the federal bench. And 
now we're, we're seeing the fact that our, our, our federal bench, particularly our Supreme Court, is going to change and shift for a generation. And, and quite frankly, it's it, that would have been one of my greatest fears uh, going into any sort of presidential election, because there's only so much damage a president can do, although I, that's being uh, that bar is being raised every day, it seems. But uh, there's only so much damage a president necessarily can do in a four to eight year term. But the federal bench and I think what what I can do in the House of Representatives is really the bigger picture of why I'm running overall, and that is our system of government, our constitutional system is not working. We do not have representatives in Congress or senators in Congress who are working together, finding common ground, and really representing the people of our country. It's 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 beholden to these special interests, the big money in, in politics, which I say all the time, but I really believe that's at the core of, of our biggest issues here. So in the meantime, what has happened? What has happened is that our executive branch has, has gotten way more powerful than it was ever designed to be, and then we are relying too much on what's supposed to be the weakest branch of government, and that's the federal court. So I think the biggest thing, not only for judicial nominations, not only for LGBTQ rights, but just our our whole Republican democracy that we have is we've got to get Congress actually working. We've got to find these common ground solutions to be able to push this forward. There's legislation that I mentioned before. I think the biggest piece of legislation that we can move forward is the Equality Act. I would also like to see some action taken, and it would really be more at the state level but the federal um, at the federal level encouraging how we can rewrite family codes because now that we have marriage equality now that we have these marriages recognized the children of these committed relationships are really getting lost where we've got family codes that are talking about mothers and fathers and that doesn't really add up. So it's been hard to to interpret. And I don't want to leave it to courts to make these decisions. It, it really should be up to our legislative branch, which is always supposed to be designed to be the strongest part of government. And so as a representative in the House, that's really what I would bring to the table and what I would try to push forward really in any type of legislation, but but specifically for the LGBTQ community. What are you doing right now to prevent corporate money from influencing your campaign? And what would you do in Congress to get big money out of politics entirely? Yeah, I love that question. So what I'm doing personally is that I am not accepting any any PAC money, any political action committee money, or any special interest money. And we've taken a hard line, and I've talked early on with my campaign team about how to handle this, and and I decided that I just want to make it across the board, where even organizations that I believe in or who've endorsed us or who even I've worked for, I have mentioned a few a few moments ago, that we will not take that money. Because it's not just a matter of needing to have your constituents really be able to feel like they they, they they can trust you, that there's that transparency and accountability. But that's also a disconnect we see among our fellow legislators, that there's that, that lack of trust with one another. So if I'm trying to promote something, then they're going to think, well, is she coming at that from because, she, you know, of her donor class or is she coming at that because of, you know, because sincerely this is what her, her constituents are driving. So I think just at a fundamental level as a candidate who isn't also currently in office, that's one of the greatest things I can do is stick to it as a candidate. When it comes to um, super PACs, you know, that the whole process with that is they don't directly 
give money to a candidate. And so it's it's important to try and make sure that we shield that and, and not have any sort of corporate money or these organizations trying to uh, spend money um, in, in trying to influence anything on our behalf. Um, so at the same time, you know, we'll, we'll take endorsements, which has been great because people who are, you know, connected to those organizations have come out and volunteered and they may contribute on the individual level. But our, I would guess that well over 90% of our money has been raised by people, not just in Texas, but who live in the district. And that means a great, great deal to me. As far as what we would do or what I would do once elected is I definitely want to focus on campaign finance reform. One is supporting the passage of a constitutional amendment that would permanently overturn Citizens United. I think there needs to be a lot more transparency and reporting. Uh, if you go to, you're probably familiar with Open Secrets uh, online, and you can go and look up our campaign and see that there hasn't even been any camp, uh, any PACs that have uh, even contributed on our behalf. And then I think that we can look at different options. You know, I'm open to different options, but I think that you can look at, you know, have the conversation about publicly financed campaigns or putting a cap on campaigns. But I really believe that until we change who is elected, and that's what we were talking about earlier, people from all walks of life at the, at, the, at the table and how they get elected, and that's through the financing of these campaigns, that we're not going to really be, be able to see these long-term change in policy that we want. We've got to change this game. And I, I say that a lot when I'm speaking, is that I'm not doing this to play the game, I'm doing this to change the game. And we've got to get better representation and more accountability. And I think campaign financing is at the heart of that. Hey everyone, I'm Nathan. And I'm Dylan. And as you know, Millennial Politics is totally independent and volunteer run. That means every podcast you listen to, every article you read, and every tweet you see is created by a dedicated team of volunteers. It also means that we can say what we want to say when we want to say it, but we rely on listeners just like you to support our work. We hope you'll consider supporting us by subscribing at patreon.com slash millenpolitics. Every dollar will go directly towards our mission of shining a spotlight on progressive candidates, causes, and organizations. And if you subscribe at the ambassador level or more, we'll send you a free copy of How Our Government Really Works Despite What They Say. It's an award-winning book about the intricacies of American government, and you'll get to join our exclusive ambassador Slack channel and get to hang out with us all day, every day. I pretty much live there, so if that appeals to you, come join us. And we want to give a very special shout out to our executive producer, Greg Stevens, and our producers, Brad Tracy and Renee Garcia-Brown. Again, if you want to continue hearing interviews and conversations just like this one, we hope you'll visit patreon.com slash millenpolitics. That's patreon.com slash M-I-L-L-E-N politics and join the movement. All right, now back to the show. So a big concern a lot of folks have with even grassroots candidates like yourself is that they'll lose touch with their district once they head over to Washington. We've very visibly seen members of Congress refuse to even hold town halls, Democrats and Republicans alike. What pledges are you making now to stay truly connected with your constituents should you be elected to Congress? Well, I love that question <laughs> because this is something I actually have, have taken a lot of time to really 
think through. And one of the things that uh, members of Congress have is what's called constituent services. And when you're hearing these candidates, you don't hear a lot of them campaign and talk about what kind of constituent services they're going to provide. And if you actually go to our website at lauriebirchforcongress.com, you'll see a whole mapped out plan that I would like to institute from the get-go for constituent services called Community Connect. And, you know, the, the big headlines there are this uh, for visibility and transparency, where it's working with coalitions of community organizations, as well as I have signed the town hall project pledge, which is committed to holding at least four town halls each calendar year. Uh, we will do much more than that, I assure you. Uh, being able to have open published vo voting records, being able to be accessible to, to those for, for office time. We also have a whole voter education and registration program outlined, uh, cutting the red tape and what's really meant by that through the constituent services is that I get asked a lot and people are going to approach me once elected about things that the, that federal legislation doesn't touch. And I don't feel like it's a good enough answer to say, oh, well, that's not in my dominion. I feel like it's still my responsibility as an elected leader to be able to connect them with the appropriate, whether it's at the local level or whether it's a state level, if it's a legislator, if it's a representative, to be able to help facilitate that accountability and transparency in government. We also have a huge section outlined about student services and engagement. I really think it's so critical to make sure that we foster this culture of voting from the get-go We have and, and, and civic engagement. We, have, uh, we actually have volunteers in my campaign who aren't even old enough to drive, so their parents will drop them off at phone banks or at different events, or we obviously have ones then at the same time who aren't even old enough to vote, and it's all the more important for them to be engaged. And I think that trying to increase voter turnout uh, and actually then fight off voter suppression is a huge critical part of what I absolutely can engage in. So there's a number of things that I've already thought about that we've mapped out that we can really provide to constituents right out the gate to make sure that they feel like their representative is accessible and accountable and is providing uh, real, real community assistance. I'm glad you brought up voter suppression because it's a big problem, not only in Texas, but across the country, even in many blue states. What do you want to do to ensure that all people have access to the ballot? Yes, voting rights is such a critical, a critical aspect of this getting an account accountable representatives. And I think there's a number of things. One of the things we see going on right now is, is a, a fight against the gerrymandering, where these districts are drawn by the very people who get who benefit and get elected from them that basically dilute the vote, uh, making sure that the Voting Rights Act is reauthorized and, and extended. And then I think there's I talk about this a lot because we we have a lot of energy about getting people registered. I'm actually a voter registrar myself, so I have the ability to register people to vote, getting them turned out to vote. But that's not enough. We have to be aware that there are going to be efforts to thwart that vote. When I was in D.C. during law school, one of the projects that we had through People for the American Way was election protection, where it was a hotline that day if people were calling and either they just need to know their polling place or they're being told or turned away at the ballot. I expect a lot of that to, to go on. So a part, a lot of it is education, but I want to talk about something that I think particularly we face 
in Texas, but definitely in Collin County. And that is we commit this own type of voter suppression when we start talking about Collin County as a red, as a red area or as a conservative area, because I can tell you what that has done. And I've been a Collin County voter my whole voting life. I know what our ballots look like. It suppresses people to turn out because they think, well, what's the point? And more importantly, it suppresses candidates to say, oh, maybe I have a chance to run. This year is different. We have, uh, we have options up and down the ballot. I think there's only one potential uh, office that is a judgeship that may not have any sort of challenger to it, but there are options now. So the second piece of that is to get out to people, which we're doing, other campaigns are doing, to let them know that there is an election coming up in November and they have an option uh, and they have options. They actually have choices that has been unlike it. And I try to tell people that I, that I'm, that I'm working with who really do want to see uh, Democrats, for example, elected. And I tell them, stop saying that this is a red area conservative area because you're creating a form of voter suppression of itself. So there's a lot of legislative things we can do, but I also think just in the way that we approach and think about campaigning and and um, elections and voter and voter education, it's important to make sure that we're being mindful of all of that to really try and make sure that we encourage people to be aware, be informed, and get out to vote. So a big proposal in regards to voting rights that racial justice advocates are pushing right now is ending the disenfranchisement of incarcerated and formerly incarcerated Americans. As you know already, the criminal justice system disproportionately targets people of color and especially low-income black people. While it's becoming more common, among Democrats at least, to support reenfranchising formerly incarcerated people, it's far less common to hear candidates and members of Congress talking about enfranchising incarcerated people as well, which I think is very important because stripping the right to vote from incarcerated people, regardless of the crime they commit, has been a method of mass voter suppression meant to target and disenfranchise black people who, more than any other demographic, vote Democratic. Do you think it's okay or appropriate to deny anyone the basic citizen right of voting? I, I, I am very much in support of being able to restore the, the right to vote to to those who have served their time. That's the whole point of being incarcerated is to serve that punishment. And once they are, once they are out there, I don't see any reason why they shouldn't be able to then exer exercise the most fundamental right that we have. And so I, there's actually a lot of things in the law that I, I think could be adjusted. I mean, personally, this may not be as interesting, but uh, I do. So I do wills and probate. If you've been convicted of a felony, you can't serve as an executor for an estate. And I can't tell you how that really harms a lot of families where they may have some drug bust from years ago. They serve their time, they did it, and now their parents have passed away and they just want to make sure that the home can be transferred to them. I mean, whose business is it? It's none of our business. So there are a lot of inequalities uh, that are built into the law that I, you know, either indirectly or I actually think very purposefully are meant to disenfranchise people who are poor and people of color who unfortunately too much in this country are one and the same. So I would be in support of restoring voting rights to those who have served their time. Could you tell us more about some of the laws that are meant to target people of color and low-income Americans? Well, I think just you look at our overall our, our tax code, for example. I mean, there's there's so many different ways that those who are continuing to try and, and 
rise up in lower income communities who are not uh, having the same sort of equal opportunity and advantages available to them. You have, um, so, I mean, even from the funding, just funding that goes into education, funding that goes in to any social services, it has a disproportionate effect on those who are lower income and those, um, unfortunately, who, uh, you know, have a, a darker hue. And you see this a lot in the criminal justice uh, system. I mean, you've already talked to it. I served as, uh, as part of an internship when I was in D.C. as uh, an investigator with the Public Defender Service. And you see it firsthand, this disparity uh, of how the criminal justice system really exists differently for two, two distinct classes of people based on how much money you have and the color of your skin. And so I think there's a lot of things that can be done to try and break that cycle. But back to voting, I mean, one of the things that we saw recently is getting rid of Sunday voting. I believe this, this may have been in Mississippi or some other Southern states, when it is a huge tradition for a lot of black churches to go after Sunday service and go and vote together. And so it's something that very innocuously looks like, well, we're just getting rid of voting on Sunday. But it's specifically directed to disfranchise a community that already exists in a government that is designed to keep them down. So you're a member of the Justice Democrats slate. I'd like to talk about some of the policies of Justice Democrats. One that I find particularly interesting is a federal jobs guarantee, which actually has very high support in the state of Texas. Could you tell us about this policy? Yeah, I think this is to address, again, this overall this overall income inequality that we see to continue to expand and expand. We have a shrinking working class and millennials in particular, the first generation to be making less than the generation before them. And that, that is the fundamental ability that people have to be able to take care of themselves, to be able to take care of their families and to be able to succeed. And so there's a lot of different... Um, opportunities that are out there, but specifically to, to, you know, well, let me back up. I mean, one of the things that I hear a lot when I'm talking to a parents, actually, that they're not, not just, uh, not just some of the, the students I talk to is that's great. So they're going to get strapped with all of this educational debt, um, student loans, which also needs to be completely, um, reformed. And then they're going to go out there and not find, find work. And we, we see a lot of that, a lot of that's being struggled. So the idea that a lot of folks are struggling with that. So the idea that we can create a program that really helps more people uh, be employed, be able to contribute and, and work from the economy, from the workers up rather than this continued policy where it's only the very top that are getting all the benefits. And then we just expect them to turn around and, and create more jobs and create this and create that when it's shown over and over again. So I think that's not just the only issue, but also focusing on more uh, living wage and equal pay for women, particularly women of color. I mean, there's so many different uh, different policies and programs that we can implement to really help the, the people and the community to build from a grassroots economy. And looking more into that grassroots economy, a big thing a lot of Democratic candidates are pushing that's not necessarily really a partisan policy is creating a renewable energy economy. Is this something you support? And if so, how would you try to enact that? Yes, absolutely. Uh, that, you know, Texas is 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 one of the leaders in innovative um, 
technology in this regard. And I think that it's, it's really, it, it's not only good for our economy, but it's, it's good for our planet. And I think the more people that we have in elected leadership who recognize the, that we have the ability to curb these drastic weather events that are being brought on by climate change, that there's lots of opportunities to not only boost our economy, create more jobs, but also save our planet. Uh, anything that we can do to push that. One of the things I love is there's the climate caucus in Congress. And what I love about it is that if you are going to join it and you are of one party, then you can't join it until you bring somebody over from the other party. And I think that's the kind of collaboration example of, of what we need. And there's a lot of policies that um, they have proposed and mapped out. I don't have them <laughs> memorized by any means, but I've looked at them. They're, they're great incentives, um, especially for incentivizing renewable energy companies and then uh, looking at implementing a carbon tax that would you know, increase the cost of business for the larger polluters. Um, there's just a lot of different elements that we can look at. So as you mentioned earlier, your district has a very high immigrant population, and Texas has really been at the center of the immigration battle, particularly with family separation at the border. What do you want to do to protect the immigrant community, especially undocumented immigrants? And if you were in Congress right now, what would you be doing to try to make sure that families are reunited? Yeah, that we see a lot of... Um disparate impact here in Texas with our communities and our families. And I, it's hard to get this administration to um, really be very forthcoming where they're, you know, they tap dance around, whether it's uh, a policy or it's a law and they're finger pointing and then both sides are finger pointing and, and nobody is coming to any, any solutions. I mean, we've got, uh, you're asking what I would support. I mean, I would, I would love to see a clean, Dream Act to allow a pathway for citizenship, but we've also got to provide more um, more judges to be able to process these asylum requests, as well as uh, immigration. I mean, we have people here. Uh, I was just at an event on Sunday, and uh, where I was offering to register people to vote, and so many people were saying, "No, you know, maybe in five years, maybe in seven years." I mean, that's how long they're waiting. Uh, when they're here, their their kids are contributing to the to schools, and and um, they're contributing to our economy, or they have small businesses, or they're working in our major corporations, and they can't even be um, represented. They can't even be engaged or exercise that right to vote. Another thing, when it comes to immigration, that's hitting our community harder is I, I mentioned earlier that we are. A very strong small business economy and the not being able to uh, have the seasonal workers for HB2 visas has caused a huge disparate impact on a lot of these businesses. For example, um, there's a, a local uh, lawn company that aren't able to take on new business and are actually having to scale back, which hurts their bottom line, could even potentially put them out of business because they aren't able to get people, this, the skilled workers, the, um, the temporary seasonal workers here to help service, you know, us, the community. And they, um, you know, they've said, look, we offer benefits. We pay above the minimum wage, but nobody else will take these jobs. And then at the same time, we have a huge corporate population here where we rely a great deal on, on HB1 visas and immigration. And so it's just very multifaceted of an issue and this refusal 
of trying to meet the minds to, to really revamp our immigration system to help get these visas and green cards processed, to help get these asylum seekers processed, to allow pass, pathway for citizenship, um, to prevent undocumented immigrants from being unnecessarily deported um, for nonviolent crimes. And it, it's it's just this overall refusal to really look at what how people are being impacted from every aspect of our community and even our economy. So what this really gets to is the criminalization of migration itself, beginning with the Chinese Exclusion Act, perhaps best demonstrated today by the fact that all of our immigration agencies exist under the Department of Homeland Security, which, purposeful or not, labels immigrants a national security threat. Now, Justice Democrats supports the proposal to abolish ICE, which I think is very important, but I also think that, unfortunately, the movement has been hijacked by some politicians to mean replace ICE and maintain mass deportation and detention, as occurred prior to 2003, started by Ira Ira under Bill Clinton, rather than ending family separation within the borders which is what detention and deportation is. How do you want to dismantle the criminalization of migration itself? Well, that's a good question. I think, you know, where the the basis of that comes from the fact that we just live in a soundbite sort of world, particularly when it comes to our politics. And so everything, no matter how you say it or how you frame it, seems to become politicized. So I will not pretend to be a real expert. I, you know, whenever things are coming up, I mean, that's the whole thing about being a representative is you don't come into it knowing everything about everything. That's just impossible. But being able to seek out the subject matter experts to help educate you. And I've been uh, learning a lot about how the different agencies interact and work with one another. And I mean, that's one of the more heartbreaking parts. Uh, and so with this, this, uh, you know, soundbite part, we don't get into a lot of the nuances. So that's one of the most heartbreaking parts of this is when it's divided among so many different agencies and, and branches of organization or of these agencies where they lose track. So we've got these kids that are completely being lost track of reuniting them with their families or they're just lost in the system. And so however you want to frame it, the point is, is that we have got to reexamine how these agencies are working, how they're communicating with each other. And when people are coming to here to our country to for, for asylum, to be able to escape unimaginable atrocities uh, that, that frankly, in many of these countries, we have helped create or bring on, then this idea that they're criminals or, or being criminalized and then being forced then into this position where the kids are separated is, is something that has, has just got to stop. And there's a way to process them. There's a way to, to treat people humanely. I mean, this, I, I think I was mortified when I heard um, our, you know, our chief executive mentioned that, you know, we don't need more judges. We don't need this. I mean, why do we have to send them through court? It's like, that is the whole basis of our constitution. I mean, the idea of due process, the idea that you get, get your day and to be represented and the idea of just out the gate, calling them criminals and, and separating them. And then they get lost in all these different agencies is one of the, one of the most heartbreaking parts of this. And what one of the most immediate things that needs to be affected, what that actually looks like, I can't tell you. I don't I don't come with all the solutions, but it's part of what I want to bring to the table and that is listen to other perspectives, other solutions and find something that that is stopping these family separations, the kids being lost and the criminalization and not being able to get processed quickly. 
So do you support ending the labeling of immigrants as inherent national security threats by removing immigration agencies from the DHS and perhaps putting immigration back under the purview of the Department of Justice, as was the case until 2003? I, you know, I... I believe I would be supportive of that. I'd want to know a little bit more about the intricacies there, but um, that that certainly is along the lines of of something I would be more supportive of. I I don't want to say definitively like yes, this is what I would do. No, it's not what I would do. I, I definitely want to be uh, better educated and better informed on all of the the background to that. But from a, a blanket statement, yes, I would be in support, uh, strong support of exploring uh, those options to doing that. So if folks want to learn more about you or get involved in your campaign, how can they do so and where can they find you online? Yeah, well, we're, uh, the best way to connect is our website, which is lauriebirchforcongress.com. It's L-O-R-I-E-B-U-R-C-H. Uh, my name gets butchered quite a bit, so we did have some extra URLs that we purchased, but it's probably best to try and uh, try and spell it correctly. And we're also on all... Um, all or most of the social media platforms, whether it's Snapchat, Twitter, Instagram, Facebook. And, uh, you know, one of the things I'm very passionate about is when people reach out directly to me, I'm going to respond to them or we're going to get a response to them. So people can feel free to, to ask me questions. If they're in the district, then there's a lot of opportunities to volunteer. There's a lot of events that you could come out and connect with us. Um, and, and I'd love to hear from people, really. Okay. Well, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast today and telling us about your candidacy. Thank you. I really appreciate the opportunity. Yeah, of course. And we hope to have you on again once you are a member of Congress. We can schedule it now. (laughs) Awesome. Well, to our listeners, make sure to follow Millennial Politics on social media. Support us through our Patreon. Check out our website, millennialpolitics.co, and stay tuned for the next episode of our podcast. Thanks for listening.